You are listening to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, and this is Open Source RVA. On the November 30th edition of Richmond's Audio News Digest, we convene an all-star panel of city watchers to kick the tires of Mayor LeVar Stoney's big and shiny Richmond Coliseum development plan. We also have another edition of Curtain Call, our bi-weekly look at Richmond's theater scene, produced by the Richmond Theater Critics Circle. Hey, the rosy projections don't lie. This is going to be an awesome installment of Open Source RVA. If you believe a booster, the impending Richmond Coliseum development plan will result in a total overhaul of a large multi-block section of the city's downtown area. According to Richmond Mayor LeVar Stoney and Dominion Energy Executive Tom Farrell, it will cost Richmond taxpayers absolutely nothing. So as Richmond City Council deliberates on just how thoroughly it will vet this idea, we've gathered a special all-star panel to do some preliminary tire kicking. My guests today are Richard Marr, Associate Professor of Political Science at Randolph-Macon College. He blogs about city politics at rvapoll.com. Chelsea Higgs-Wise, activist and journalist and recent Star Weekly Top 40 Under 40 honoree. She can be heard every Thursday at noon on WRAR's show, Women in Politics. Mark Cheatham, the man behind the Cheats Movement blog at thecheatsmovement.com. He's also the host of the Cheats Movement on WRIR, heard every other Tuesday on this station at 11 a.m. And Jesse Perry, one of the founders of RVADirt.com and the co-host of Municipal Mania, which is heard every Wednesday at 11 a.m. here on WRIR. She helps to produce Open Source RVA's popular Quick and Dirty Council Roundup, and she's a recent Style Weekly Top 40 Under 40 honoree. And last but not least, Justin Griffin. He's a practicing Richmond small business attorney whose livelihood is to review complicated documents and contracts and kick the tires. Justin is also the main force behind a brand new website that critiques the Coliseum Development Project called NoColiseum.com. Thanks for coming, everyone. Uh, We have a lot to cover. This is potentially, as the mayor himself said, the biggest economic development project in Richmond's history. And Cheats, you reached out to the Navy Hill District Group and uh, asking for uh, the, the specs of this project and how it will be funded and uh, this overview is sort of a, I guess, meant to be a condensed version of the analysis produced by the uh, Hundley Strategic Partners. Um, uh, I quote, There is no government money going into funding this project, whether from the city or surrounding counties. And it continues, The city owns the land, the Coliseum, and the Blues Armory. The entity known as Navy Hill District Group would rent or buy the land from the city. We're still negotiating that point. They would pay the city for the land. Then the Navy Hill Group would use private money to build new structures on the land, apartments, offices, stores, restaurants. They would rent those buildings out and make money that way. Then the private owners would pay regular real estate taxes on those new buildings, the same rate as everyone else. No one's tax rates will go up, no new taxes will be created, and no developers will get any special tax breaks. The city would then use that new revenue to pay the debt, to build a new arena, and to fix up the Blues Armory. The construction of the arena, a portion of the renovation of the Blues Armory, and raising Lee Street are public improvements being paid for by the sale of bonds, which are non-recourse to the city, uh, no moral or general obligation, which is separate from the city's bonding capacity. This is a 30-year debt, like a home mortgage. It works like a mortgage, too. The faster you pay it off, the more you save on interest payments, and the less it costs. By paying less interest, the city can dedicate more money to schools, housing, the arts, and core services faster. The city would own the new arena and armory, and a private group would operate them for the city. That's what happens now with the two downtown theaters that the city owns. Essentially, the city would get two valuable things, a new downtown neighborhood and a new arena and fixed-up armory that the city would own and someone else would pay for. Doing all this creates 22,000 jobs, 700 units of affordable housing, 
and 300 million invested in minority businesses. Uh, sign me up. I'm ready. This is this sounds great. Why the city council don't even look at it? It's just, it's wonderful. Can I make one point of clarification? Sure, sure, that's sure. exactly what I got, and that's exactly what I got from the group. But I want to be clear that those are the group's numbers. Yeah. So you mentioned the third party kind of audit that the yeah. mayor paid for and released. Yeah. They are they are separate entities. Right. So those are the Navy Hill numbers. The third party entity that was hired by uh, the administration did a review of what they knew of the proposal gotcha. and they came with so it's not it's not so, one and the same so so do you know if those numbers are different the numbers coming out of the uh, analysis so the story the narrative that I'm hearing yeah, yeah. is two different narratives in, in regards to I think they kind of in the best way to say it is it kind of th that third party study becomes all things to all people mm -hmm. so the Navy Hill District Corp can say oh yeah look they validate exactly what we're saying a lot of ways and then gotcha. uh, we've seen th other entities review it right. um we've got great panelists here that reviewed some of the numbers that the third party said yeah. and said hey they don't add up so both I, literally in the last 24 to 48 hours i've heard both oh the the third party review backs up what we're saying and i've heard that it clearly doesn't by certain numbers and so that's where i believe okay there's going to be well, some that's, rectifying that's not confusing at all i saw some wincing and shuffling of fannies over here while i was reading uh Justin, uh, you have the NoColosseum.com uh, website. You've, right. you've uh, scrutinized this plan, or is it three plans? Uh, <laughs> tell me, uh, uh, yeah, talk about this. Uh, what, uh, what's going on here? Well, the way I see it is there is a public analysis that was put out by the third party that Mayor Stoney paid, looks like, over $500,000 to have done, mm -hmm. and they have made that public. It's about 180 pages. And that is what doesn't necessarily match up to the talking points, um, what you just read. It right. doesn't match up. And so I went through all 181 pages of it to, to make sure to see where these huge numbers were coming from. Okay, let's confirm it. You know, like you said, sounds great. Sign me up. But when you actually dig into the numbers, it doesn't add up to what they're saying. Right, right. Uh, any other thoughts on this presentation that we're being given, the public is being given? The, the presentation from the Navy Hill yeah, Development yeah, Corporation, yeah. which is the only like definitive uh, we uh, presentation we have at this moment, right? It uh, it reflects. Uh, I mean, I don't know how far we want to go into my own personal psychology on this, but it reflects <laughs> my own Let's profound go. disappointment with the Stony administration and Mayor Stony himself, because this is exactly what happens in every city. This is exactly what happens in every city and county that gets dazzled by the latest dream of a new arena, mm -hmm. of a new stadium, of a new uh, big building that's going to bring in all this tax revenue for the city, and it's going to solve all their problems. It's, um, it's and we've also been here before, Richmond, but but not but not at this level. This, exactly. This is like uh, you know uh, writ large. Uh, yeah. It's and it, boondoggle writ large. If, I mean, if we go back to the campaign, uh, you know, Lavar Stoney ran for mayor. Um, he stole a line from John Belisle's about no more big shiny projects, right? And John Belisle's, after he was locked in a cage in the basement of City Hall for a year or whatever he did for the mayor, uh, is now gone. Yeah. And so is com Stoney's commitment to avoiding big shiny projects. This project is the biggest and shiniest that we've seen yet in Richmond, uh, and it's solved. It, it has the same kind of problems, not just the numbers that Justin is talking about, but a host of other problems that large-scale development projects like this face. Uh, and we'll probably get into some of those problems today, but it's just, uh, it's, it's disappointing because it's uh, Mayor Stoney acting like a bunch of city leaders have always acted. They get dragged into development deals as, you know, I think well-intentioned. Well uh, I don't, I mean, I'm not one of the people who characterizes Tom Farrell as Montgomery Burns. Uh, mm. He's not, I think even if you, uh, give everyone the the benefit of the doubt. Everyone is just has the interest of the city at heart. They're doing the exact thing that city leaders have always done, which is build something big and hope it generates enough revenue. Right. And uh, yeah, uh, I, I, I do want to just so I can understand uh, my understanding of the process was that the administration actually kind of figured figured out that they wanted to do lane development and issued an RFP for this. And so this group came together in response to the mayor's request mm -hmm. as opposed mm -hmm. to 
the mayor being enticed by a. Is that is that is that wrong? Like I, I just want to be I just want to understand the. Farrell has been talking about a coliseum for well before the RFP was put out. It's kind of been his pet project for a while. There was uh, one actually in 2017. It would have been February 2017 because the General Assembly was actually talking about it in January 2017 where they ended up passing something where there can be the regional board actually Ramada I guess is what I would say would be able to control a coliseum mm-hmm. and so right around that time of that going through the General Assembly the most recent time that Farrell's talked about the need for a coliseum was actually starting into that February time frame and then as that passed which then Stoney ended up putting and actually before I get into where Stoney put NH district was actually formed I believe in July 2017 and then after that is when the RFP got put out by LeVar Stoney and so this was all kind of a, it's it's hard to tell the chicken or the egg on it because for as much as you say this this project specifically is a direct response to the RFP at the same time this is something that Farrell has been planning and has been working on for a while right and so uh, is this something I'll just uh, let's pull back is this something we need or, or could or could all of this happen naturally I think you need to define what something is uh, a new Coliseum well not a new Coliseum but growth in the area surrounding the Coliseum yeah, we need some growth for areas for black people. Right, right. Right. That And when you asked about the presentation and the PowerPoint, and I've seen the PowerPoint at least eight times now mm-hmm. and presented, and each time I keep wondering where the reinvestment and the name Navy Hill came from and, 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 and what that plan is. So the idea of them coming in and, and naming this group Navy Hill is exactly why somebody like me that talks about racism and co-opting names and um, appropriating movements, tactics, and methods you come in, you name it Navy Hill, mm-hmm. and then all of your pictures, all of your spaces, the PowerPoint, everything seems to please nothing but white people. Yeah. And <laughs> so I'm really- But don't int- you put African-Americans in the background while you're making those presentations? Oh, they were great. I mean, the historical pieces showed lots of black people. Oh, when they got to the workforce slide, mm-hmm. black people, great, you know? Um, but seriously, it was all these high-class coliseums, high-class, um, the arena, the event space, where in the world does it look like somebody in Richmond, black, white, what we live here now, would go on a regular basis? Like, where is the spots for us? So when I'm looking at that presentation, I'm continuing to ask, how in the world is this revitalizing Navy Hill? Because I don't see any black ownership. I don't, I'm, I'm really just not understanding the need for calling it Navy Hill, except for the fact that you're using black history and methods to continue to weaponize it against us. Oh, wow. And, and I think that's why you need people like Chelsea uh, involved in, in the project from the beginning. And I do think that those types of representations are things that actually have historically have left kind of a bad taste in Richmonders' mouths, uh, gentrification and those types of things and leaving a community behind. One of the things that I do uh, feel has been different so far in this project is that uh, there's been an attempt I'm not saying that they're even close to getting where they need to be, but there's been an attempt to reach out to people that I think have not necessarily been to the table before that hopefully now an attempt to reach out and actually having influence to make a difference in the end run of the project is two different things, Mm -hmm. but that's where the community themselves need to hold everyone accountable. And so that's what challenges me in regards to not being involved at the table because we need I think the when I say we, I'm using the Richmond we or the broad yeah, 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 yeah. regionally. They need Chelsea at the table. Yeah. They need a bunch of the the Mimi Winces of the world and whoever else that kind of all all the hosts on this on the show. They need those to ensure that there's include there's inclusion. There's those types of like because they're going to throw. I mean, the throwing is it's already out there. There's all you know the affordable housing numbers are out there and the job creation numbers are already out there. But the accountability is what needs to be the difference. And I think that that's really, really important for, you know, this to move forward in a way that I think a community can actually support in a, long, a large way. And that's, and that's only time will tell on things like that. Yeah, I think when you're talking about, all right, we're putting names on there, it all sounds like a, a lot of PR. You know, we're using this specific name, we're, we're hitting all of the buzzwords, we're hitting this percentage to housing, this, per, this, these number of affordable units, Something we're calling for it Navy Hill. And for me, and the reason why I really started digging into the only numbers that have any kind of depth to them that have been published, 
Um, and, you know, I'd say depth lightly because there's not really a whole bunch behind them. They're kind of thrown out on 180 pages, and there they are. You know, I really started digging into that because when I see something that is, you know, this is too good to be true. It's got everything we need. You know, we're going to get, you know, all these new concerts. We're going to get all these affordable units. We're getting everything. And the way I've been approaching it is I think everyone should be looking at, you know, Mayor Stoney in this realm as that person that you went to high school with and they message you out of the blue on Facebook and they want to get lunch. You're immediately like, all right, this person's going to try to sell me on some get rich quick scheme. Right. You know, all right, here we go. And then you go to lunch with them and there they are. They say, all right, you know, give me a thousand dollars. And, you know, in six months, you're going to be working four hours a week up from Maui and you're going to be a millionaire. And you look at these things and you're like, oh, wow, this is too good to be true. What you should be doing is, you know, really scrutinizing those numbers and saying, okay, yes, this does sound too good to be true. So I'm really looking at, okay, what does this person really have to gain in it? And you, you look at it and you're like, okay, too good to be true is too good to be true, whether it's a multi-level marketing scheme or it's a billion dollar arena deal. I think one of the kind of the lenses going back a little bit to what Chelsea and Mark are saying, but also to this point about, you know, how are we looking at this project? So this is actually directly from the Hunt and Strategic Partners uh, document here, the 181 page mm-hmm. uh, analysis, and it's from the executive summary. And it's something that's quoted a few times in here. And it's part of the project that it describes the goals of this project. And I think that that's an important thing is that what the stated goal of this is, is also a piece of what we have to analyze and to Chelsea and Mark's point, especially about inclusion, because what this says is development such as proposed in the project aims to serve as a catalyst to keep these professionals downtown outside of working hours by offering residential options as well as retail entertainment and dining. And so when they talk about the professionals out of town, they specifically in here list MCVVCU, they list Virginia Biotechnology Research Park. And if you go into the back with all the numbers and you look at what the average salaries are, what the average um, for outside of the affordable housing, the market rate apartments and what they cost, this is really geared to attracting upper middle class white people to this thing. That's what they've built this whole thing. So where is the space for African-Americans that have been in this in this area this entire time? Instead, we go to the meetings and hear about how this area is currently a wasteland. And you look at who is down here in this community. We're ignoring the fact that it's always been a community that was destroyed by our development to begin with. Mm -hmm. And I think understanding of, you know, a big concern is that this is built and designed for white people. So to not have the inclusion at the very beginning of it and then on top of it to see this hard sell of the numbers is there's for me to get behind it. There needs to be a lot more as far as but where is the inclusion to make sure we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. Right. And I just want to add on there is that I don't know if they're intentional about it or they just don't even hear themselves, but it is also a line of we want to make sure that the people that work here can live here. I'm really worried about what about the people that live here? Can they work here? That's the problem, the mm-hmm. backwards, the intentionality of where we have to start. And if we're talking about who's there, the community, and I've been a social worker, a caseworker for the last 10 years, and I know that there is a community down there. They may not have leases on apartments and things like that, but it is a community of those that seek out services, that seek out mental health, and seek out all sorts of things that live there and, and stay there during the day, and that is their community. And not all since mention we've talked about land and that sort of thing, and it's open, it's not making any revenue. Well, even going back back to looking at some plans from 1961 they're already talking about that these buildings were two-story flats they were like single family homes and but unfortunately they were blighted areas like and what was going on in 1961 to have a blighted area oh right that's the interstates that's what we're looking at right so this wasn't an empty area it's just a few gen- like a generation ago you made sure and displaced all the black people you displaced that family that community that was there and thriving so now that some time has gone our memories don't work as well now you're saying oh no resident we're not displacing anyone no one lives there yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll speak to the affordable housing uh, component of this because i saw you roll in your eyes when we mentioned that uh, i was i was really just going off of Jesse's point of in the goals they state very specifically who this affordable housing is going to be for yeah. and the, ho- the affordable housing is going to be for MCV students it's going to be that's the, the, the point of who's going to be able to get this affordable housing um, not low income housing and I think a lot of people that don't understand yeah. housing and social services that is a completely different bracket and population of people affordable housing is not going to go and look for someone that's been living in Gilpin and Mosby that's not so if you are looking at oh that's going to really help the people that need the support that had been mis, um, 
underrepresented, that's not going, affordable housing is not for them. That's more subsidized and low income housing. Right, and so uh, the y you can tell that there's almost like this guilty conscience thing going on where they're constantly, they being the, uh, the Navy Hill folks, uh, the mayor and the administration, constantly talking about affordable housing, minority business, all this money going to minority businesses, never mind the fact that a lot of the kind of minority business contracts are usually shadily awarded for you know front people, like you get a front person, you, you're a person of color who's up front, and then everybody else is white in the, in the business. Um, it, it, it's almost like it's not almost like it's definitely the case here. I think that that you know we're not dealing with a bunch of idiots, and they they probably recognize on some level, yeah, it's not going to do a hell of a lot for the African Americans in the city. But I think Stoney has sold himself on this idea that gentrification of this neighborhood is the price we have to pay to raise revenue for the schools. Like that's his dream. It's 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 raise, increasing the pie. He always talks about it, and that's what I think uh, brings us back to the numbers, right? That if the numbers have to add up, then if you're going to make that case, then we, we have to make sure that sure. this is a great deal for the city. I, I I don't disagree, but I do struggle with the alternative of not being intentional, and so that that concerns me. So even if it kind of sounds nice, the affordable housing piece of it, and the minority business bin, yeah. and all that. It, even if you present it as something that may not be genuine, the alternative of not including those things would be very uh, troubling as somebody that wants affordable yeah. housing and somebody that wants minority spending and so forth. And, and so I, I'm not saying don't I'm not saying fake it. Mm -hmm. But what I'm saying is this is where we're this is where the starting point needs to be at a baseline. Yeah. And if you can hold because we've had how many projects in Richmond that doesn't do that, that doesn't establish a baseline, and then it clearly leaves uh, communities and residents and things like that out of it. And and so I do, I've got to acknowledge the fact that history has proven the, the distrust accurate, right? Like you're not making this stuff up out of thin air. There's a reason to be skeptical. Exactly. At the same time, I think you, you posed the original question was, is this needed? Is this something that would, would benefit in the long run? And, and, I, and I go back to the, the discussions that we have with a lot of Richmond projects, including Shaco Bottom, is in regards to that project down there. I understood a lot of the the kind of challenges with that project, but I told myself I've got a four-year-old son, and if Shaco Bottom looks the if Cameron's four years old now and Shaco Bottom looks the same when he's twenty-four, mm -hmm. I think we failed, and I will I will actually say the same about a Coliseum, not necessarily the area and the community. I can't speak to that dir directly. But if we have the 1970 built, when's it built? 71. Well, like if we have yeah, that same yeah. Richmond Coliseum when Cameron's 24 years old, I will look at my kind of time period of now and say we've done our children a disservice. Can Isn't I, it? Yeah. Go can ahead. I jump in on that? Okay. So I I just really want to say the idea of oh we have it or we don't that is the most it's just so closed minded to me because it again doesn't go to the fact that there are other options we don't have to do nothing or this we yeah, can think yeah. of other yeah, options yeah. to do and that's the options of having low income housing of having intentionality behind that um, I am a Richmond resident. I live here, I vote here, and I would rather have a longer process that takes the intentionality and maybe Shaco Bottom doesn't look the same for my four-year-old, that is Chloe and we live in the city. I would rather do that and have that process go on than have something else that looks shiny and new, but now my daughter and I can't even afford to live in the city. Just Right, and I think sometimes, that, sometimes these public projects do work, but they work when you have a city that has the structure built they have a you know a vision of what the city wants to be, mm -hmm. and they have a plan to implement that. Richmond doesn't have any of those things. And what ends up happening is Richmond leaders come in, and the new big shiny thing comes walking by that they can build their legacy so they can move on is what ends up you know getting their attention. And you know the the pitch always seems to be that you know Richmond is you know one big development away from being the next it city. You know it's like Richmond is not one big development away from being the next it city it's one competent city government away from being the next it city boom or or a better uh, school system away from being um, that and, that and city. a competent government would provide us with a good school system I, I think the term was tier one city 
Ah, yes. has been, been used uh, many times. A, a tier one city, I mean, even thinking about that, who do you think about, what does that look like when you think of a tier one city? Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just be honest. We think about affluent white folks walking, even maybe, you know, well-to-do black people. But the, the point is of what, who are we historically and who are we going to be in the future? Right. Uh, I, we, how does this help schools? Well, Mayor Stoney says that this thing is going to produce $1.2 billion of extra new revenue so that they can then allocate $600 million of it to help the schools, which is another buzzword to, that right. they're working on with this. Right. And and what, what, do you think that was shoehorned in? Uh, t- talk about how you looked at those numbers and whether they uh, add up. Well, all, I, all we really have to go by is this Hunden Strategic Partners you know, air quote, independent analysis, the firm that was hired by Mayor Stoney. And so when you really start looking at the numbers on that, because you see Mayor Stoney saying $1.7 billion in new revenue, and then so that'll leave $1.2 billion left over. Uh, You even see it on the cover sheet that the city added to this analysis. And then you start looking at the actual numbers in the analysis, and it's not even the same. When you start looking at the actual analysis, they actually say $1.3 billion in new revenue but then when you start digging even a little bit further even in their numbers and you strip out things like the dominion towers which are going to be built either way you you get you lose a couple hundred million dollars right there yeah and then if you look at their increased you know sales tax revenue numbers they have things in there like the lodging tax which doesn't go to the city it goes directly to the convention center and so you lose a bunch of revenue from that so what you actually end up with on their numbers is not you know, 1.7 billion in new revenue, you end up with something more like 903. Mm-hmm. And after you pay what the city is going to have to pay on the bonds is 620 million. And so that leaves you with about 280-ish, you know, million dollars or 9.4 million a year, about a billion less than what Mayor Stoney is saying. Yeah. Can, can I talk? Absolutely. Can I, can I tell my donut shop story? Do do. So my donut shop analogy, right? So imagine a city block, uh, a couple of businesses, but there's a couple of vacant lots. A baker comes to the city and says, "I'm gonna build. I'm gonna make a donut shop, and it's gonna make tons of money. People are gonna love to come to my donut shop." But I can't get af- any donuts anywhere. What's but I but right? But I can't afford to build the donut shop. So city, you build it for me. And the city says, "Why should we do that?" And the baker says, "Because people will come from all over to eat my donuts." They'll go next door and they'll they'll go to the clothing shop and buy a bag. They'll go down to the restaurant, have lunch. Maybe they'll even stay at the hotel across the street because they want to come the next day and get my donut the next day. And so the city builds the hotel. They think there's all this economic development going to happen. And guess what? Sometimes people just want a donut. That's what happens. They come, they buy a donut, and they leave. And so the promise of the arena and the reason why these numbers are even in the strategic report that Justin's talking about these numbers are are really on shaky ground to begin with, is that the Hunden Group and everyone who gets involved in arena development deals suggest that there'll be all this economic development that comes along with it, that people will come to the city who were never coming before, they'll spend all this money they weren't going to spend, and it just doesn't happen. Isn't isn't this the biggest example of build it and they will come that you've ever seen? Well, it's predicated on... It's not the biggest in Richmond, but it happens over and over again. In other cities and other counties, they build baseball stadia and they build football stadia and they build arenas and arenas at least are better because you use them more often. Right, but but, it, but that has so much to do with what you bring to the arenas and if you give it up to the same group that's programming every other venue downtown, then I fail to see how you're going to be bringing the best. Exactly. And and so just one other point on this is that there's there's other things like residential space, right? Maybe we need more of that. There's commercial space. Maybe that doesn't cannibalize other parts of the city. Convention space. Convention capacity across up and down the East Coast is way, way, uh, we, have t- we have too many spaces and not yes. enough conventions. So right. this idea that all these people are going to come to Richmond and have meetings, there's no basis for it whatsoever. Just, I, I just want to ask a question so I can understand the clarification. So, no. would, and I'm not the economist, Justin, you might be able to answer this better than me. Some, or Rich, somebody explained to me, or, or even Jesse, I'm sorry, somebody explained to me the non competing bond aspect of this. Because I'm trying to understand, which I don't right now 100%, but when they, when the, when they put the bonds out, possibly, mm-hmm. are, is the city on the hook for that money? Because I think the argument that I've heard is that 
because they're what? How did you clarify it, Don? Non non competing competing non recourse non recourse. So does that mean that the city's not on the hook for the bonds and the lender is? I, that's what I was trying to understand because I'm trying to understand the the argument that there is no city kind of funds involved in this. It's fake news to suggest it. Well, here's is it? I mean, I, I would like no, to get a the, clarification. That's what the mayor said last week. It, what it means is that if investors invest money in the arena project, right, in this whole uh, this whole project, they invest any money into building the arena. They pay. F they basically invest in the bond that the city issues. If it defaults, if, they, if the city can't come up with enough revenue to pay those investors back. They they lose their money. That's it. They cannot sue the city. The investors, not the, the city. Investors lose their money. Investors can go and they can go to the city and s they can't go to the city and say you got to take money out of your general fund and give it to us. However, however, is the city going to look at this half-built arena in the middle of downtown? Are they going to look at this half-built you know crane sitting abandoned in the middle of the project and say, well, I guess that's our that's on us. I guess we uh, just will abandon it and let the the plants take it over. Or will there be tremendous pressure on the city to find more money, just like mm -hmm. they did with Center Stage, right? Yep. Find more money to make sure that the deal goes through, make sure that the project goes through to continuation, or at least some version of of completion, and, and find that money wherever it can. And I can tell you from previous, not experience personally, but from previous projects like this, that's exactly what happens. The city has to step in. The city has to take over. So, and even though the investors uh, can't sue them to get the money, they still feel obligated. Just so I'm clear really quick, the, the way that it's drawn up, the city's not on the hook, but you're saying pressure if they default will we'll force the city to respond. That's what I was just I, Logical thinking. Yeah, yeah. So can I – so this is actually – I uh, I have questions that I uh, <laughs> asked okay. the city All right. and got a response. This is – let me be very clear. This is a question that I asked – and this is the city response that I'm going to quote because I want to hear like a reaction to what their response is. So my question was, how would defaulting on a non-recourse revenue bond impact the city's bond rating? And the direct answer is, the financial projections for the project show negligible risk of any potential default as debt service for coverage from the TIF revenues is averaging over 150% after the initial build-out. Any default on the bonds would be at the risk of the bondholders. It would not directly impact the city's ratings. Justin. Yeah, so that's when you get more into the weeds of what actually they're proposing in this TIF district, and you start to realize why they drew the TIF district to include almost all of downtown. So if you look at the actual numbers in these projections from the Hunden Strategic Partners, if you take just the, you know, the project itself, just the arena and the hotel and the apartments and that sort of thing, they project that it will generate $342 million in new property tax revenue. Remember, it's going to cost the city 620 So just the project itself doesn't even come close to covering the cost for the city. So then when you expand it out and you use you know, the entire TIF district minus the Dominion Towers, mm -hmm. you're only getting, because you're going to have the Dominion Towers before or after, so it, the difference there becomes only $576 million. So the entire TIF district, in, which is most of downtown, all the way down to, you know, the new town bank tower and the Dominion Towers, including all of that, they are projecting that new tax revenue caused by this project will only be $576 million, which is less than the 620 that it'll cost the city. But what they do is then, because that there's also natural growth in that area, and so what that does is that puts them over the hump with the new Dominion Towers. There's a big bump. There's just natural growth from all of those really nice buildings and the most profitable part of downtown for the city. And so it's using that money to get them over the 620 hump. So that actually creates the negligible risk, in quotes, because they took all of the revenue from downtown. Why did these Navy Hill talking points not talk about the Dominion tax money? Why did they not mention that? That, that would seem to be a, a component you'd want to at least mention. Well, because it's a negative for them. They only want to talk about the benefits. Even this Hunden Strategic Partners document, it literally does not talk about any of the costs for the city. It's only benefits. The only reason, the, where I'm getting the $620 million is actually from the Times-Dispatch, and that's the only place we've ever heard of how much this is gonna, yeah. how much is this gonna cost? And kudos to uh, Mark Robinson, right? right? I think that's one of my main my concerns about this project is that right now we're having to take these numbers and backfill what this project looks like. 
for me to actually go through and figure out what was going to happen project block by project project block by project block i was having to go through three different chapters of this whole thing yeah and i think that it's really um hamstringing the community when we're having to argue numbers when not everybody in the community is necessarily equipped to argue numbers and it's difficult to say ultimately these are always an analysis and a hypothetical projection is always going to be that it's a hypothetical projection i really wish that the community had the actual project to debate the merits of the project itself versus just these pie in the sky or hypothetical numbers and that's a really important point because it's not just the community it's it's city council as well so i've talked to at least um I've, i've talked to at least three or four city councilmen in the last 48 hours and it's it's important that I mean that's a very important distinction that we got to realize that the final plane's not done, so the final plane's not released not because somebody's embargoed it or it's being held. The the eyes aren't dotted, the no, T's aren't crossed. In fact, the talking and, points say we're still negotiating. Right. So so it's very important to understand. I've talked to at least three council people today that have said, "Hey, you know, cheats." With all due respect, once we get the plan, that's day one. Yeah. And so the, I, I do again. We go back to this over and over again about how much information should be shared prior to, you know, council getting the votes and and, and trying to avoid ways of saying, because uh, it, it's infuriating to anybody that's a citizen of Richmond. It's infuriating when we're like, okay, the votes here in council's like, oh well, we we don't we just got this. How many and, times have we seen this? Where right, we don't have enough information. We don't have enough information, but we've got to okay it now because right. of blah 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 the contractors blah blah blah. S- and that's what happens. And then all of a sudden, two years later, you realize nobody know who's pay- knows who's right. paying so, taxes. So, so what I think what a lot of the groups are trying to do is they're trying to strike a balance between let's try to throw as much meetings and public so forth as possible. I know the same city council people that have told me that they haven't seen a plan mm-hmm. has also said that they've probably had at least each of them have at least had three or four closed door meetings where they've been bought to current speed of where the project is right some of you know at least one of those council members uh last week said that that's not enough they want an independent commission yeah, yeah. to to do that that was so, kim kim gray wanted to kick the tires right so kick the tires i think is the quote that that was used so i mean but but it, it really is jesse makes a great point and we really do have to make a clear distinction that there nobody has seen a plane yeah yeah no one has seen one and and it's not just kicking the tires we got to check the engine you know, we 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 got to make sure a lot of different things though, that there that there's a rearview mirror, right? And something that we could talk about are the people involved, the people that it's going to affect, what people have been impacted by per history with large projects like this, mm-hmm. and what that impact has done to a city, to a certain demographic, and getting wrapped up in the numbers is just going to distract everybody and distract the people that need to be at the table asking questions. Yeah. And it's going to it's going to def- deter them from coming forward and because they've already said oh this isn't going to raise your taxes they've already answered the questions that they know black people in richmond are going to ask based on money they've already put that narrative out there this nothing from the city it's not going to raise your taxes nothing to worry about but the the true piece is is that we're still not talking about people and i asked about workforce because every time i talk about black people and minorities I'm like well we're gonna have a great workforce program well number one that's truly racist it's going to take more than a job to get anybody out of harvard and please stop saying that number two it really is when I ask about the workforce strategy and how this is going to be different from other smaller projects that weren't able to meet the capacity and the needs and the numbers and this is going to be the biggest one they're still not able to tell me the strategic plan they actually literally said to me at the press conference that we have not yet had that strategic plan right now we're just trying to get it passed yeah so we're not going people first and that's where we're always get black people last yeah, and just to throw out a couple of numbers from this analysis that kind of go to some of those points you were talking about. So they're throwing out a lot of numbers about jobs, 22,000, 21,000. The analysis actually only says that it expects around 8,000 mm-hmm. max, mm-hmm. with only around 6,600 of those being permanent jobs, whereas Stone Stoney's throwing around a lot of numbers like 21,000, 9,000 permanent but the the analysis does only look specifically at jobs within the city of Richmond. So maybe Mayor Stoney thinks he's creating fourteen thousand jobs in Henrico or something. Um, but they the analysis points out that only they project only seventeen point five percent of the construction spending will be spent within the city of Richmond. Only seventeen point five percent. And then to go towards the no raising taxes, I this is another aspect of I find it too good to be true because in the projections that he, are here. 
a lot of this revenue from you know you know more people downtown because there's arena you know the the apartments the hotel that's going to bring in all kinds of conventions and that sort of thing none of that is going to start flowing in for like four or five years Mm -hmm. so once this project starts the property tax levels are locked in and so there's no growth in that and then we don't see revenue for five years so what happens in two or three years when this you know puts a real bind in the city budget and they can't make ends meet and you know all right now they're coming for more taxes and and just to follow up on uh, not to continue with numbers but what numbers over people but the 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 this strategic report from the Hunden guys uh it's it's thrown together it's pretty slapdash uh i i just looked like five i had five minutes to look at a one table which was on college enrollments uh, and it's completely wrong. So it says that Randolph-Macon College, my college, only gives associate degrees, which I'm sure Jesse and alum I'm would be very I'm great. Yeah, I'm currently I, re- I have three majors and a minor from that college. Exactly I right. Am now, exactly right. And that so was a four-year degree. I was definitely there all four. It's years. a simple table, just <laughs> trying to make the case that oh, you know, there's a number of college students in the area, and even that looks like it's shoddily put together. I can't tell whether the numbers aren't from a single source. It looked to me like they just Googled a couple of places and found some old numbers and threw it in there and fine you know make them estimates but it's just if that's the kind of effort that goes into just this one table that i found in there it just kind of reflects the amount of effort and uh, that's put into here i'll and add the rounding's inconsistent by the way so that was one thing that also just yeah. bothered me to the core is the rounding where they'll either round up or down so it feels like it's just slightly off but anyway and justin's so, point about the, the the consulting firm is it's it's they're not this disinterested, uh, dispassionate group of economists. They're a bunch of, of Dubro finance guys. Do from they have the, an economist? From they have no Hunden, economist. Yeah, there's a couple they of have like, no finance guys from uh, Hunden's alma mater uh, that he clearly, they look like they're 12 in the pictures on their website. They <laughs> yeah, so let me, out of their department. Yeah. let me jump in and say that I've met with a few people that actually talk about TIFF experts, and they were talking about this group, and they said they literally are the rookies. They take the, the first-line graduates out of uh, University of Illinois in Chicago, and they are actually TIFF experts in Chicago that they could have gotten mm-hmm. if they really wanted a true analysis on this. So even just looking into this group itself, that it's already an illegitimate. They do have one guy that has a kinesiology degree, though. <laughs> That seems helpful. Yeah. yeah, they're the expert witness. They're not the right. They're they, not the they, disinterested analysis. They're they the do hundreds of these analyses. Or if arenas, you go, if yeah. you go to their website, it there are countless numbers of these projects that they've reviewed, and I have yet to find one that they didn't think was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Something I think after now we've kind of like mounted this this number piece of it also that I want to throw back in there is when we eventually get the plants. One day we're going to have to see the plants, right? Yeah. So one question that I had also asked. I would hope, right? So one question I'd also asked the city was when you bring this, because this actually goes back to the training camp deal, there were a couple pieces that when it got pushed through city council, they said, well, don't worry about not having the plans for West Hampton School specifically, because you're going to have to approve the zoning later. So you're going to have to have a say later anyway. So don't worry about it. Approve the project now. We'll zone later. So my question was specifically, will council have to vote on the plans for the projects individually, like as they come up for the zoning and everything like that? Or is this going to be a one behemoth thing? And so the answer from the city was the intention is to bring all ordinances requiring city council approval to council at one time. So, you know, we have the numbers and eventually we're going to get to the place where we have the project. We've had far more time to talk about the numbers. And my concern is at what point do we get the project? And then also how much is it? Because it's 10 project blocks. That is a lot to look at as far as digging through and making sure that it makes sense. And I think that there's a place where it could overwhelm a lot of people we've just gone through and said how many places we could take issue with the numbers and and, and my only hope is that that's where experience matters uh, on the council right so we've had uh and f- put your faith in council one way or the other but I, I mean i think we've been through enough challenging and bad deals mm-hmm. with the understanding that council really needs to actually if if they have concerns. They need to voice them if they need to put brakes on them. And I think that's where us as citizens need to hold council responsible to do their jobs in a way that is responsible for their constituents. Just so you know, we actually, so RVA Durst Municipal Mania had a show today that actually, or sorry, Wednesday, not Friday, um, that went out and looked at the past two years of city council's ordinances and resolutions passed. There was less than 20 that they voted no on. 
uh, in the past two years that they've been here. So another piece of this that kind of, you know, to be fair, they're not putting things up that are out there as far as taking a, a, a risk where there might be a no, but just to the point of the trust on city council from like my side of it, a lot of the times it feels like once it gets there, it, it's their yes people yeah. and the numbers of that show it. And so that's why my my piece is that I want to I feel like this is already going to be a yes, unfortunately, because I don't have as much trust in the council that they're going to do their job. Because it, it always is. As it always is. And so I'm really pushing for a, com uh, a community a, um, benefits agreement or community benefits ordinance so that this accountability that Mark is talking about can be with the people. I don't want city council negotiating that for us. I want there to be a, a true people power there that hasn't been in the last 60, 70 years for all these developments. We are uh, out of time. Uh, I already know I want to invite each and every one of you to come back, and we can do this when we do learn what the final plan is. Deal? Deal. Deal. Awesome. Thanks, y'all. The Richmond Theater Critics Circle. Curtain call. A discussion of all things theater with Richmond critics and occasional guests. Welcome to Curtain Call, Act 4, Scene 6. I'm Jerry Williams from Sifter. I'm Rich Grissett with Style Weekly. This is Claire Boswell from Style Weekly. And I'm Julinda Lewis with RVA Art Review. And we're going to talk about three different shows today. First, Rich and Julinda and I are going to talk about Sister Act, which is playing at Virginia Repertory Theater through January 6th. After she witnesses a murder, an aspiring disco singer takes refuge in a convent where she converts the pitiful choir into a rocking ensemble. What did y'all think? And of course, this was also the movie which many people saw with Whoopi Goldberg. I think that you guys liked it a lot more than I did. I thought that everyone involved with the show was excellent, enjoyed the set, enjoyed the sound design and, and the uh, uh, lighting design. The music was great, but I don't know. I just walked away not feeling much. Um, didn't have I, that spark. It didn't, and at least not for me. I think you guys had, had a much more positive take. It's the kind of show that people who don't see a lot of theater are going to be drawn to because they're familiar with it. They know the story. They've seen the movie. Right. And mm -hmm. that's the kind of a show that brings people into the theater. And I think that's a good thing. Talking about the specifics of the show, Felicia Curry, who has been in town before and done some great work, I thought she was spunky. She just never really had that comic spark that could have made that role powerful. But I don't know if the musical version of, of that role is as comedic as, I mean, Whoopi Goldberg is you know, right. Hilarious, sure, but right, you know, right. I think that she supplants that with vocal powers. Right. Yeah. Sure. Oh, she can sing. Everybody can sing. It was a great sounding yeah. cast. Anthony Smith, who has done a great job before, the orchestra sounded fantastic. They did. Agreed. There are some highlights. When I find my baby, which is the boyfriend, who's a, oh man, when I find her, I'm going to kill her. But as a sweet R&B number, I, I really enjoyed that. I did think that was very well done. Anytime the nuns were on stage, there was just tons of fun. They were also eager and innocent and charming that I think they really brought a level of energy to the show when you had all of them on stage at once. That was really a standout. Kelsey Cordry, especially, and Gwen Wood, both really stood out for me. Yeah, I was going to mention the two of them. They really brought a little bit extra to it. I enjoyed the, the costuming. And the set, Ron Keller's set, was lovely. The big arches and the granite block kind of basic elements and then some pieces in front of it. It was very impressive, at least the overall set. The smaller pieces were just kind of okay, but the big background, I thought, was kind of nice. It was impressive, and it was well designed, but I felt something was missing. I somehow was expecting more from the set than what was there. So overall, I'm hearing we thought this was a pretty fun show, but not as fantastic as it could have been. Well, I'd say that for theater people, it may not have been as fantastic as you would hope. But for your average person who's going to go to the theater, they'll love it. I'd agree with that. All right. We've been talking about Sister Act, which is playing at Virginia Repertory Theater through January 6th. <laughs> Now, Claire, Julinda, and I are going to review a 1940s radio Christmas carol, which is playing at Swift Creek Mill Theater through January 5th. First, let me say there's the 1940s radio show, which was the original version of this, and this is a new spruced-up Christmas version where we're taken behind the mics of the show as a group of actors put on a play of the Dickens classic in 1943, Newark. Like many sequels, it took a lot of the same stuff and just rehashed it without being as clever or as hilarious. What did y'all think? Well, I haven't seen the original version of this show, so I can't really compare it, but I thought that this was a pretty enjoyable holiday show. Uh, Jolinda and I agree, the coolest thing about this show is getting to see two of the actors perform the sound effects for the radio show. Gordon Graham and Claire Gates both did a great, and that was the fun of the last one too, mm -hmm. as you're watching all these sound effects being created. I also thought the ensemble was really strong here. Strong voices all the way around. They had a lot of fun characters. 
I did think that, again, Claire Gates and Tara Callahan Carroll, both were standouts, both great voices. They created lots of interesting, fun characters, too. I think some of the problem might have been the script. It kind of rambles some. It could have been a lot tighter and maybe been funnier. A lot of the jokes really weren't that funny. You know, good old Tom Weth, the one thing he's known for as a director is keeping things moving, and he kept the energy up, and the cast seemed to be enjoying it. I just don't think the play is that funny. The, the ensemble was very strong. Everybody's voices were great. Right. The pace kept going rather well. But at the end, maybe it could have been cut just a little. Well, especially that last <laughs> scene, which just kind of just, just petered out there at the end. You're like, what? That's how it's going to end? Well, the beginning and the end were kind of just Ramping up and a, ramping down. Yeah, yeah, it was just pedestrian, as if they hadn't actually started entering into their roles yet. Right, right. And once it became the radio play, and by the way, for the audience, they have an applause sign and a laughter sign, and so we're the audience. And they actually hand out a whole other program that has fake biographies for all the actors on stage, which was kind of fun if you want to take the time to read that later. But as far as the show overall, what are we thinking here? I thought it was an enjoyable show. I think I agree. It was a little too long. Absolutely enjoyable. Worth the trip out to Swift Creek to see it. I would say it was a lot of fun, too, so we had a good time. We've been talking about a 1940s radio Christmas carol, which is playing out at Swift Creek Mill Theater through January 5th. Now we're going to keep rolling along with Who's Holiday, which is playing at Richmond Triangle Players through December 15th. If you saw Christmas on the Rocks, this is bringing back Kimberly Jones Clark as Cindy Who, and this time it's just a one-woman show of Cindy. I think Kimberly Jones Clark is absolutely fabulous, but my issue with this, it was as if you took something that was supposed to be a short skit and then you turned it into an entire evening-length play. One hour, yeah. So there was just too much of Cindy Lou Who. Kimberly has incredible timing. She's just flawless in her delivery, and she's got a great face. She could mug, and she could do a lot of fun, and I think she was very funny a lot of times. The play just does kind of drag on, especially the prison sequence. I'm going to disagree with both of you a little. I agree that Kimberly Jones-Clark was fantastic in this role. I think she's so funny. Uh, Kimberly was also great with the audience. There was a couple of interactions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The audience interaction was fantastic. I kind of liked that this play went into some dark places because I think that ultimately the story we're getting here, while really funny, is a woman who is struggling with addiction and trauma and the aftermath of essentially being groomed into an abusive relationship from childhood. And that's some very real stuff. And I thought actually that Kimberly Jones Clark delivered all of this in a way that we're never making fun of this woman. We never see her, I guess, uh, coping behaviors uh, without also seeing the trauma that's led to them. And uh, I really appreciated that. So that people don't get the wrong impression. This is definitely not a family show. It's it a little bit raunchy, not. cheerfully raunchy, yes. I said. And it's mostly funny. There is some darkness, but mm-hmm. I don't want people to think, oh, this is a heavy psychological drama. It's all in rhyming couplets, mm-hmm. for crying out loud. It's got to be kind of silly because it keeps moving. Yeah, and that's, I think, part of what I mean when I'm saying that's so impressive, is that it's kind of like a Dr. Seuss book about some really real stuff, and it actually deals with them. It's not just surface level right, uh, right. jokes and humor, although there is a lot of a surface lot of level yeah. humor. And Claire, I, I really appreciate the way you put that because mm-hmm. that's very true and very real. The way she handled that character, the way the script handles that character, it puts some things that are very dysfunctional into a very respectful plane, but mm-hmm. still maintains all the humor. Absolutely. And I just want to mention both of these fellow reviewers skipped out at intermission and did not stay for the short little cabaret afterwards. Which I which, regret. Well, uh, and you should regret it because <laughs> Joshua Wortham is on piano and he is either accompanied by Georgia Rogers Farmer or Shannon Gibson Brown who both sing some very clever contemporary holiday songs and a couple of traditional ones. It's really quite a lively and fun little top off for the end of the evening so I encourage you if you go to see the show stay for that. And we have been talking about Who's Holiday which is playing at Richmond Triangle Players through December 15th. And that's all we've got for this week's Curtain Call. We'll be back in two weeks with three more reviews. We also want to thank Open Source RVA for hosting us on WRIR. This is Jerry Williams from Sifter. I'm Claire Boswell from Style Weekly. I'm Rich Grissett with Style Weekly. I'm Julinda Lewis with RVA Art Review. For extended podcasts and complete reviews, visit the Richmond Theater Critics Circle website at artsies.org. Um, I'm ready to do the outro to the show, Christy. Okay, so listen. 
We don't have much time here. I'm leaving for New York City early in the morning. I still have to pack, and I want to get a good night's sleep. All right. So do you think just this week you could do your closing straight without all of the theatrics and the hullabaloo? Hullabaloo? I don't hullabaloo. Don, you know what I mean. Can you do it fast and without any of your sound effects or diversions or people popping in and out with funny voices or any of that? Oh, right. Hullabaloo. Well, sure. Okay. I really need to get out of here and get home, so if you don't mind. Well, you know, I have no problem with that, Christy. I mean, I'm very busy myself, and, you know, I have a lot of very important busy things to do myself. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, the documentary on Brian De Palma just popped up on Netflix, and I really need to work on my coffee table art book on Banjo, my cat, and how he loves to stare at me while I take relaxing sure, baths. Sure, 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 sure. I mean, it's really unnerving. Oh. He just stares at me like he thinks I'm an ingredient in a big bathtub full of Don. soup. And then he opens his mouth really wide every once in a while, uh, like he's trying to figure out if he could possibly fit parts of my body in there and, and eat me or something. Don. Banjo is a really weird cat. I mean, he's fluffy, but he's frightened. Right, this is what I'm talking about. Huh? Could you just do the closing outro just so we can get out of here? No, no problem, Christy. Just, just start up the music and let's go. Like I told you, I'm very busy. I just bought new refrigerator magnets, and the packaging looks really complicated. Okay, jeez. And that's open source RVA for Friday, November. What is the date of the show? <laughs> November thirtieth. Yeah. Okay. Ugh. Start over there. And that's Open Source RVA for Friday, November 28th. Thanks for listening. No, it's going to be November 30th. Oh, okay, right. Can we just start? Yes. And that's Open Source RVA for Friday, November 30th. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Don Harrison, and the show's producer is Christy Albus. And if I may, let me just stop here and say, Christy, you do great work here at The Source. I mean, each and every week, you bring the stuff, and, and, and I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Don. But please, go on. No diversions, remember. Like, like see, right there. Right there. You aren't just a producer. You're a director. You are a, a time manager. You're, you're like the motor that regulates all that we do. Don. Okay, okay. Leslie Hayden's our production assistant, even though she couldn't make it this week because her car broke down. She's probably dealing with some burly tow truck driver out in the middle of nowhere. You know, gosh, I, I hope Leslie's all right. Uh, maybe we should call her. Leslie is fine, Don. Her car broke down outside her house. Will you go on? Of, of course. The Richmond Theater Critics Circle produces our weekly curtain call segment, and... I don't think we really acknowledge the great work that they do. I mean, Jerry Williams, Jalinda Lewis, Susie Hobbenstock, and Rich Grisette, they do a great job of covering theater events in this town, and we're sure lucky to have them. Thanks, you guys, really. I mean, like Christy, you bring the stuff. I mean, not like Christy. I mean, you're doing different things. You do theater, and she regulates time and space. But you're uh, sort of... I'm losing my patience in a really big-time way. You know, it's funny. Speaking of Rich uh. Grisette... I have known him for many years, but I still want to introduce him as Rich Grise. <laughs> it's funny how your brain and your lips will just get tangled up. And Don, well, I swear no- to you that if you finish this up now. And speaking of coalitions or groups or consortiums or whatever you call it, I don't really think we acknowledge the governing board of WRIR or the Virginia Center for the Pubic Press or whatever they go by on this show. We really need to thank them for their unique contributions. I mean, they do everything in their power to make this station run like a switch watch and not like some amateur hour, oh, we're volunteers, so we don't need to be professional kind of thing where electronics aren't fixed and stolen equipment isn't replaced in a timely manner. Okay, now I know you're stalling. And Mike McKenzie. Dear sweet Mike McKenzie. You know, we kid Mike, but he's like you, Christy, and the Richmond Theater Critics Circle. He really brings the stuff. Mr. Bridges, if you do not wrap this up immediately, I am going to Uh, uh, take uh, this mixer and beat you over the head with it, uh, and then I'm going to throw you uh, down the WRIR stairwell. My my ear, stop twisting my ear. Okay, okay. And Mike McKenzie is the beaver. You can like Open Source RBA on Facebook, subscribe to our Twitter at Open Source RBA, and listen to past shows on our SoundCloud page. Tune in next Friday ah, at noon for another thrilling edition of Open Source RBA right here on WRLP 97.3 FM. Hey, that hurt, Christy. I really can't believe you sometimes, Don Harrison. I, I really am very busy, 
with very busy things that I have to do, too. Yeah, right. Sure you are. It's It's time for Who Said That? on this episode of the Rainbow Minute. These days, more and more Americans are going vegetarian. Besides the fact that meat production is a huge drain on natural resources,